I'm, I'm now 41 years old. Um, I'm, that's not old. My, my daughter yesterday goes, Daddy, how old are you? And I said, I'm 41. She goes, <gasps> like this big, huge, like, you know, and she's actually, that's not that old, really, Daddy, you know, so you're, you're okay. And so I said, thank you, sweetie. But she actually came into my room yesterday morning and woke me, well, woke me up. It was not that early. I was actually already awake, but she came in and she jumped on the bed and she sang me a big happy birthday song. It was awesome. And she did a little dance for me, and, you know, because she's seven years old, and you still do that when you're seven. Uh, and so uh, she, she did that. It was awesome. And she said, Daddy, you can't leave this, your room. We have a surprise for you. And I said, well, I said, what's the surprise? Now, I knew what it was. She wanted to bring me breakfast in bed, which is pretty special, right, on your, on your birthday. And I kind of already knew what it was because Lisa told me it was going to happen and, and such. But there's something special about getting breakfast in bed. Right? How many of y'all love to get breakfast in bed? Anyone love that? You're like, that is, husbands, look around here because I see a lot of ladies with hands up. Uh, you know, that's, that, how many of you are not a big fan? You're like, whatever, doesn't, that's not that great to me because when you've had it before, you've had an experience like this guy I'm about to share with you. Uh, stories told of a guy who had a son whose birthday, the guy's, it was guy's birthday, his son came in and said, Daddy, I made you breakfast in bed. And, of course, he came in, you know, all nice and quiet. No, he came in, he slammed him on the, on the gut and said, Daddy, wake up. I made you breakfast. And so the guy kind of, you know, wakes up, and there's on, his, on his, his belly is a tray with what looks like breakfast, but actually may not be. He wasn't sure. But he looks down at his son with anticipating eyes. says, Daddy, take a bite. And so he, he looks at the bowl of what he assumes is cereal, it was more like three or four kinds of cereal mixed together, but had been so long and so puffy and so mushy. It looked like a lot like something else, but he wasn't sure. So the son said, Daddy, take a bite. And so he reaches his spoon into the, into the bowl and finds that there is no milk, but there is water. And, and so the, the dad said, son, son, where's the milk? And the boy said, well, actually, Daddy... The, 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 the milk carton was just too heavy, so I, when I tried to pour it, I dropped it, and the milk carton broke, and I didn't want to wake you up, so I put water in instead. And so he said, take a bite. Now, at that moment, you have a decision, don't you? You know, you're like, okay, do I, do I like, look like I want this to look like this is going to be gross, or do I kind of just make it through? And so he took a bite and smiled, so, oh, it's just absolutely wonderful, son, Thank you, so good. And then the next thing was, next to his plate, there was, well, he assumed it was toast, but it was actually a black hockey puck that was covered in peanut butter on both sides. And so the son said, Dad, take a bite of your toast. And so he said, okay. And so he reached in, to, reached out and took a bite and took a, you know, a, a crunchy bite and he tried as much as he could to enjoy what he was eating, but he didn't really enjoy it, you know what I'm talking about. And, oh, that's so good, son. Thank you. And, and after eating this toast, he said, I need a drink of something. And, and so in front of him, there was his coffee cup. Now, thank the Lord for automatic coffee machines, right? Because their machine made coffee for them, and the coffee looked pretty normal. It smelled normal, so he reached down and took a drink, and sure enough, the coffee tasted good. And the son said, Daddy, that's the best part. Now, after you've eaten, you know, cereal made with water and toast that looks like a hockey puck, 
when your son says that's the best part, you got to be a little concerned, right? And so the dad says, oh, uh, uh, what's going on? The son said, Daddy, there's a surprise at the end of your coffee. Drink it up. Again, you know, milk and, you know, so, so he drinks his coffee, and as he gets down to the end, he almost chokes on an army guy. And, and so the, this dad, like, you know, spits it out. There's actually two army guys in his cup, and he says, son, what's, what are these? And the son said, dad, that's the best part, because the best part of waking up is soldiers in your cup, right? <laughs> now, how, yeah, how do you get through that? How do you do that as a parent or as a person? How do you do that? Well, you need to have a little tolerance, right? Now, some of you are like, oh, buddy, tolerance? I can't wait for today. It's going to be a great day because tolerance is like red meat to wolves when it comes to Christians, right? We love to hate and talk about tolerance. This morning, that's what we're going to do. I want to encourage you to read, to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. And now that I have your attention, some of you guys are like, what is he going to say today about tolerance? We come this morning to a church called Thyatira. Now, I'll be honest. I love the book of Revelation. I have spent time in Revelation. I have always wanted to do a series on these seven churches. And I will be honest this morning, I didn't know a lot about the church at Thyatira. I know I've heard a lot about Philadelphia. I've heard a lot about Laodicea, which we'll get to next week. I mean, I've heard a lot about other churches, but I was, I'll be honest, I didn't know much about the church at Thyatira. It's a fascinating church. You come to this place in, in, in Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through, uh, through 28, and this city was a fascinating place. It was a blue-collar city. It was like, like Flint, Michigan. If you've ever been to Flint before, Flint is a blue-collar city. Factories, and there's smokestacks, and there's all this kind of stuff around you. And the people of Flint, the people of Thyatira, were blue-collar kind of people. They were hard-working people. They were people that were, 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 were bronze workers. They were cloth dyers. They were carpenters. They were hard-working people. Thyatira was found 35 miles southeast of Pergamon, which we talked about last week. Now, Thyatira is different from the other seven churches in that those churches uh, tended to be much larger, much more cosmopolitan, much very wealthy, very beautiful cities. Thyatira was not. If you found yourself in Thyatira, you were there because you lived there or because you had to be there. You would not have vacationed in Thyatira. Again, think Flint, Michigan. If you vacation in Flint like my wife did when she was a little girl, honest to goodness truth, uh, they used to go camping in Flint, uh, if you did that, I, you're a little different. Because you just didn't go to Thyatira for any purpose other than if you had to be there. But Thyatira is a very interesting, very important city. Because of the nature of Thyatira being a blue-collar city, they had a very interesting detail as a part of their culture. They had what was called guilds. Now, guilds, if you don't know what a guild is... Uh, you have potentially heard of the Gilded Age in history of the United States and such. A little different from that, guilds were essentially unions. 
Now this morning, I'm just going to tell you how much I love unions. No, I'm not going to do that this morning. Don't, don't, wor don't worry today. It's, you may be love, you may hate them, whatever, but Thyatira was a city of unions. You were a part of unions. If you lived here, you knew it. It impacted your life. It was a part of who you were as a person, as a Thyatiran. And we'll get to why in a moment. But let's read today verse 18 of chapter 2. These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. Jesus there establishes that he is powerful. He's not just a milk toast. Uh, you know, guy that walks around the peace sign and, you know, a, a, a sash around his, he is powerful. He says this, he says, I know your deeds, I know your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and you are now doing more than you did at first. He starts off, first of all, by praising Thyatira. And to be honest with you, there's a lot to praise. This was a great church. If you and I would have visited Thyatira, we'd have been impressed. This, this passage here says, he says, I know your deeds, your, your love and faith, your, your service, your perseverance. This church had the good works of Ephesus, but added the love Ephesus at last. They had perseverance and follow through like Smyrna and Philadelphia. I mean, they were a great church. He even says, you're doing more than you did at first, which means that they're growing. Now, how many of you all would love to say Jesus comes up to you and says, Great job. I'm encouraging you because you are growing, right? That's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Jesus encouraged this church. They were growing. But, and that is a big but, it, the, this passage continues because the blazing eyes and burning feet go into action in verse 20. He says, but nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate. Everyone say Tolerate. Tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I'll cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her uh, suffer intensely, unless they repent of their ways. I will strike your children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Wow. Right? That, that's some pretty intense stuff. Take a deep breath right now because that's intense passage, isn't it? These are some big words right here that Jesus uses. Now, again, I've said this before. When if Jesus were to have something against me or against us, I want to listen and hear what he's saying, right? We know that these seven churches were not only real churches, but they were also prophetic in the fact that they pointed towards churches throughout the rest of, of history. There are church ages that have a lot in common with these seven churches. And evidently, here in this church, there was this lady who was a very dominant leader by the name of Jezebel. Well, but actually... It, that probably wasn't her real name. You know, it's, it's, maybe it was. It's possible that was her name. But at this point in history, uh, like today, you don't fight a lot of little girls named Jezebel, right? You can imagine, like, find some cute little girl. Oh, what's your name, girl? You know, think, like, you know, Susie or whatever. My name's Jezebel. You know, you'd be like, what parents did you have, right? Well, that's kind of how it was then, too. 
And the reason was because there was a real Jezebel, wasn't there? Jezebel was a real person, was the queen of Israel back many years before this, and Jezebel was wicked. She was evil. She was a a pretty awful person. So Jesus here is probably making an allusion to that lady. Who was she? Well, glad you asked. Jezebel was the daughter of of, of a king named Ethbaal. Ethbaal had Jezebel, and Jezebel was supposedly very alluringly beautiful. She was a breathtaking beauty, but she was also very, uh, very tempting, and she was pretty evil at her heart. That's quite clear in Scripture. If you read in 1 Kings especially, uh, she married Ahab, who was the king of Israel, who not only was a very weak-minded man, but he also was the most evil king Israel ever had. So you can imagine that this Jezebel plus that man comes together to lead a people, it's not going to be good, right? And that's the case. What happened was Jezebel led, she had such influence over the people of Israel that she led them away from worshiping the true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and she led them away from that God and led them to worship Baal. Now, you probably before have heard of Baal. He's the golden calf and this crazy thing that they bowed down and and worshipped. And what you may not realize is that part of the worship of Baal, there was all kinds of sick stuff. I'm not going to mention it. There's kids around, but it's not very PG. It's more PG-13. And so if you read this account in the Old Testament, you find what kind of person Jezebel was who led God's people away from truth and away from blessing to this spot. And Jesus says, you now have a lady like that who is in charge and who's leading within your church, and you're tolerating her. So the big question is, how in the world could this church tolerate someone like Jezebel? And I think the answer starts with the words she calls herself a prophetess. See, she, she, she claims to speak for God, and she gleaned, she gained credibility with gullible, unwise Christians who, verse 24, if you read down, cheat ahead a little bit, says that she taught them so-called deep secrets. Now, before we get to the, 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 the crux today, we have to establish first, where does wisdom come from? Does it come from me? Do you listen to me and my wise words and because I'm so wise and because I'm quite wonderful and I speak God's wisdom and I speak wisdom, is that where wisdom comes from? Because if that's how you feel, I'm going to let you down someday. I'm just going to be honest with you. Not always wise. Does it come from you? I know some of you and I know that doesn't always come from you either. And that's okay, right? Because wisdom doesn't come from me. It doesn't come from you. It doesn't come from some unseen, strange, powerful, mystical light force, you know, that's like oozing into the, you know, the solar system. That's where wisdom comes from. No, that's not where it comes from. We have to consider where it comes from in an age of tolerance. The scripture tells us here in Proverbs 2 2, 6, it says, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. Colossians 2.4, and I love this. It says, my goal, this is Paul speaking, Paul who planted 
these seven churches, ultimately, he kind of was responsible for them. Uh, Paul, who they would have known and read and understood, chances are this church at Thyatira had this letter that was to the Colossians. They had it too. These letters were passed around from church to church. That's how they became Scripture. So they would have had this. Paul says, my goal is that they may be encouraged in hearts and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, a.k.a. wisdom, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. This passage, Scripture, is clear. Wisdom doesn't come from you. It doesn't come from me. It doesn't come from a light force in the, in the heavens. Wisdom comes from the mouth of Christ, who gave it to us through the words, right? Now, again, for most of us, it's like, duh. You know, I mean, I would have been surprised if you say anything else, Pastor. If you did, I might be leaving right now. So, so along comes this lady prophetess, with something just a little bit mysterious. Now, I want to pause here for a minute. You see, her gender wasn't the problem. I've heard before people say, well, it's because she's a woman, that's why. No, the Old Testament gives a number of female prophetesses, which I want to make sure I say that right, uh, the, who, were, who, who God used to prophesy, and, and, and so there's blessing there. Some uh, might say that, well, that's Old Testament, but New Testament, no. But, but in Acts, Philip, who was a spirit-filled evangelist who preached throughout Palestine, Philip had four daughters in Acts who were prophetesses who prophesied within the church. So her gender isn't the problem, okay? What is the problem is that she was a false prophet with an attractive, mysterious, but error-filled message. And the trouble with the church at Thyatira was that although they were in great in a lot of areas, they weren't prepared to reject this message as false and dangerous. Now, I, I, again, this morning, I didn't know a lot about this church when I started studying this week. And to be honest with you, I have really learned a ton about Thyatira. I was up last night until about 12.30, cutting my notes out because I had so much detail and so much stuff out there. And I thought, man, if I do that, we're never going to get out of there tomorrow. So I want, you know, I'm going to want to have lunch sometime. So I was cutting things out, but this church is fascinating. What's happening here? And, and so often we've heard before the parallels between the American church, you know, and, and Philadelphia or the American church uh, you know, and Laodicea and such, but I think we have a lot in common with this church at Thyatira as, as well. See, this lady comes along and gives them this very attractive but very mysterious sounding message, and what she taught was essentially this. This is what she taught the people. She said, you can be a Christian, you can be a Christ follower, but you can also do what your culture says, and you can embrace and you can do these sexual things and this worship stuff. You can do both of those two things. He, she said, you can do both. And the reason why you can do both is because that's how you make it in the world. That's essentially what she taught. There's history books. 
that talk about this church, that talk about this city, Thyatira, and what the church was like in this city. It's fascinating. Although I'm a nerd, I'll be honest with you, but it's fascinating stuff. So as I'm studying this, I'm thinking, how could a church planted by Paul, who taught things like Colossians chapter 2, how on the world could a church like this be duped into such an obviously sounding awful message? And I think the answer lies in, in their culture, in these guilds. This is what's fascinating about these guilds. They were unions. If you were born as a, car- a carpenter's family, as a son, you would have been a carpenter. Chances are your grandpa was a carpenter, and his dad, and his dad, and his dad was a carpenter. You would have had a long history and a long tradition in the carpenter world. Your dad was a, a plumber, if they had plumbers, you know. If your dad was an electrician, they didn't have those, but it, you, you get the point. You know, if he was a, a wool dyer and, and such. If you were born into this kind of life, that's what you would have had, right? Follow me so far. You didn't do any business. You didn't do anything unless you were a part of the guild. They were like the ultimate cronies, right? They were just like, you know, Hoffa would have been, would have been jealous, you know. That was, the, that was the, the culture in this part of the world, If you wanted to build houses, you had to be in the carpenter's guild. If you wanted to dye wool, if you wanted to sell your dyed wool, you had to be in the carpenter or in the wool dyer's guild. It was just part of life. And because of the nature of this, it wasn't just a thing that they went to once a year and did a little voting and such. It was their entire life. In this region of the world, Thyatira, Guilds were your family. You didn't just go to the meeting. The meeting happened every single week, constantly. They had meals together. They, 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 they did life together. They, the guilds uh, did everything. You paid into the guild. When you got your first job, you paid into the guild. And the guild took care of you when you got older. Uh, when you retired or your family retired or when you died and such, the guild took care of you. So you can imagine that if you were not a part of the guild, your life would have been difficult. Now, here, so far, so, you know, so good. Here's the problem. Is these guilds were not just unions. They weren't just trade unions. They were also worshiping spots and, and such. The, the guilds were absolutely, completely in with the practices of worship of these erotic gods of the Greek world. Again, PG-13. I'm not going there this morning. If you're a nerd like me, read up on it, but there is some sick junk in those places. And history books tell us that the church, the quote-unquote church, and these guilds were together so often. And the history books show us and tell us that this part of the world, there was so much confusion and misunderstanding when it came to the nature of who Christ was and how I was supposed to live, that church embraced the guilds. That's what history shows us. Now we see here in this passage where that comes from. Again, it, it, makes, it makes sense. I want to quote from uh, Bible scholar William Barclay who Research these guilds. He says these guilds met frequently and they met for a common meal. Such a meal was, at least in parts, a religious ceremony. 
and probably meet in a heathen temple. And they would certainly begin with a libation to the gods. They'd raise a drink to the gods. And the meal itself would largely consist of meat offered to idols. The official position of the church meant a Christian could not attend such a meal. And thus you have the problem if you were a Thyatiran Christian. Because you have a choice to make. Do I do this or do I do this? And But and that's a problem, isn't it? That would be a, a difficult place. My heart goes out to these Christians. But it's clear that obviously some chose both. And they chose both based on the teaching of a certain lady who was teaching them. And I'll give you a spoiler alert today. You can go to the end and read to the end. Both is not a choice, okay? It's just not. But they didn't believe that because they tolerated this teaching from this lady, which makes sense. Again, because, man, you think about how hard it was for them to be what they had to do and to make it and such. If someone comes along and can tell me that you can be a Christian and a Christ follower, but yet also embracing the culture like this, I might be all ears if I don't have wisdom and knowledge from the word, I might be all into this. And thus is the problem of the Thyatiran church. Her, her teaching made sense. She said things like this. She said, you'll, you'll, you'll need to submit to the, the pressures of culture in order to make a living. She says, you'll be able to give to Christ cause more. That the cause of Christ will spread in Thyatira because you've done this, because you're going to be blessed, because you're going to need to go out there and make it happen. You know, she would have maybe taught things like business is business, church is church, keep them separate, right? You know, you just, that's what you got to do, you know. God will certainly over, over understand and will overlook this. And this teaching of this lady got permeated into their beings and their thoughts and their lives. And Jesus rebukes them for unwise tolerance. I'm going to pause for a minute here this morning. Unwise tolerance. You see, Tolerance requires wisdom, doesn't it? Uh, tolerance is not bad. It's not all bad. There's a lot of good tolerance. You need to, and you need to be tolerant if your four-year-old son brings you breakfast to the bed. There needs to be a little tolerance there, right? We need to be tolerant of other religions, other belief structures. We, we just do. We need to tolerate those things. We need to listen. And, but it doesn't mean that they're right and you're right and we're all right. See, this is the problem in our modern day age, is that tolerance is being redefined is no longer what it was or what it is, but what it will and should be. It's being changed. We live in an age of tolerance. It's an age of tolerance without wisdom. See, here's the problem, is that tolerance for it to work needs to be tied to the mores of, 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 of maturity and wisdom. When I go up to my brother-in-law's house in the UP, they live on Lake Huron. It's a beautiful place, and they have boats. And you have to tie the boats down to the dock, okay? So they have these cleats there, and you, you tie it down a certain way so the boat doesn't end up blowing away and drifting away because there are moors there. There are wood that goes down deep into the ground under the water that ties those boats so they don't float away. What's happening in our culture is those moors are being lifted and pulled up and redirected and put someplace else. And they're being put in a place that is not based on wisdom. For instance, let me illustrate. 
Let's say that I taught my girls from day one that my green shirt is actually a purple shirt. That I took whatever opportunity I could. That when I saw green, I said, guys, the world tells you that's green, but I'll tell you it's purple. Who are you going to believe? You're going to believe your daddy or you're going to believe the world, right? You know, they can tell you all they want that, that green, is, green is green, but I tell you green is purple. So if someone says your green shirt's purple or green, you say, no, my daddy says it's purple. Well, if I did that, you'd say, you are crazy, right? You'd be like, you're nuts. That's not purple. It's green. But am I really unwise? Am I really crazy? Because in an age of unwise tolerance, the problem is not that. The problem comes because... There, the, the cultural moorings, the cultural tolerance mooring says every view of truth and morality is equal to every other view. So I'm not right. I'm not wrong. You're not wrong. None of us are wrong. None of us are right. It's just whatever it feels to me to be, that's what it is. You see, we are struggling in our culture as believers trying to navigate these waters because the moorings of morality are being pulled up and replaced with that as the mooring. That's it. And the only time that you can be wrong is if you say someone else is wrong, right? I'm not telling you things you don't know. These are things you watch and your blood has boiled, You've been like, I can't believe it. It's not fair. It's not right. That's not tolerance. You've thought that before. You believed that before. You've said that before. You see, logically, you start to understand what's, what's created is chaos in our world. And I'll pause. When, when the church was the prevailing voice in culture, or at least a prevailing voice, when the church was the prevailing voice, much of culture saw reality and saw truth and saw morality in much the same way that we do, right? They saw things as a way that we see them. As biblical Christians, it was very similar. That was the moorings of society. But what happens when that's no longer the mooring of society? What happens when that's changed and turned and flipped upside down for that what was once thought moral is now thought reprehensible? See, that's what's happening in our culture today. It is, a, it is a plan of the enemy. It is a plan to up, uphold, uh, to upheave, bring upheaval into truth, into understanding. And I will tell you this morning that we have to pick up and listen up. And we have to be wise with where we are in the, in the world nowadays. When I was, um, when Lisa first moved to our house here in, in, in uh, Minnesota, uh, she wanted a, she wanted a, a wee or a, um, a garden, and uh, when I was growing up, garden gardening was not fun. Gardening was a was a torture plant for my mom. I'll just be honest with you this morning. You know, it was no, it wasn't that bad. But but whenever I whenever I had, was naughty, which was quite often, I had to go out and weed the garden. So you can imagine that I did not equate fun with gardening. And so when my wife wanted to plant a garden, I said, I will help you. I'll build the boxes, I'll till it all up, I'll do all those things, but I'm not weeding. If you want a garden, you weed it yourself. Well, those are famous last words, right? As guys, amen? You know, I mean, let's be honest with you. Today, um, I have weeded the garden happily. I've, wed the, I've wedded, weeded, whatever, weeded the garden. Until this year. This year, 
we decide not to plant a garden. Uh, busy, just things going on. We didn't plant it. The problem was we had these large plats of very fertile black dirt. Guess what happens? It doesn't matter if we planted or not. Something else planted there, and weeds grew up like crazy. Until one day, my wife said, we got to do something about this. we got weeds this tall, so we got to go out there and pull them out. So she did most of it. I did a little bit. She did most of it. And, and we were pulling weeds out. And at one point, she said, I think there's some good stuff in here, too. See, the problem is, is I can't tell which is good and which is bad. See, that's our culture. And that's the danger of this church in Thyatira that they tolerated teaching that sounded really good but wasn't fully founded on the principles of God's plan and God's word. So the big question today is this. How could they be duped? I've asked the question already. I haven't answered it yet. Now we're going to walk through this. How could they be duped? How could a church planted with truth, how could a church planted on moorings of truth, they had to be, Paul planted them, how could this church be duped? They they could be duped the same way that we could unless we learn from them. There's five things that I want to pull out of here that I want you to understand from this passage. Number one, we must be both wisely tolerant and wisely intolerant. When someone asks, are you tolerant, sir? They ask, are you intolerant? Uh, You've got to unpack that, right? You've got to stop, and you've got to think about that for a minute. You've got to to allow that to to just kind of work through your heart a, a little bit. Every culture, every group, every place practices both tolerance and intolerance. It's why we see what we see in our culture today. Our culture, though they say they're tolerant, they practice both tolerance and intolerance, and all of us do. Let me explain. If you walk into a hospital and you said, I want to smoke, they're going to be intolerant, right? You know, when, when, when McKill was born, uh, she was born in a hospital in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, it was a very large hospital. It took up most of, of, of the city blocks. And so there was a small patch between the street and the sidewalk where the nurses and doctors could go and smoke. And I will tell you, it was about a, about a block long. I went out for a walk one night uh, when Mac was born. I went out for a walk, and I could not walk down the sidewalk because that patch of land was literally covered with nurses and doctors out for a smoke. Why? The hospital's not very tolerant to smoking. You know, you, you can say, well, I want to light up, I, I want to smoke, and they will say, no, they're not very tolerant of that. They will discriminate uh, because of a deeply held prejudice against smoking, right? Makes sense, doesn't it? Now, I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily. I don't think smoke is a good I- I- idea either, but they're impinging upon personal freedom of choice and public expression of that choice. You can't smoke in a hospital. See, our culture does this, right? They, 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 they show and they do both, sometimes they do tolerance and sometimes they do intolerance. You see, we sometimes need to tolerate and sometimes we need to be intolerant. And the question comes, not just everything is right or everything is wrong. We need hearts desiring redemption for everyone and heads under the leadership of the Holy Spirit to know the difference. 
See, if we don't have those things and both of those things in place, you're not ready yet to be tolerant or intolerant. You need a heart of redemption like Christ. Christ came to do this. God has a plan of redemption since the beginning of time to the end of time. God's heart is for redemption. You also need a head that is under the leadership of the Holy Spirit or you'll be lost. The problem with the church at Thyatira is they had neither. Number two, modern tolerance is hypocritically intolerant of biblical Christianity. You're like, that's like red meat to wolves, man. You got it. Amen. You know, I, that's, that, that can be said in many cases. You know, it, it seems that that was the case as well in Thyatira. Truth is, today, you can't make fun of people and culture. I saw a, 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 a thing the other day about a show that I used to watch back in the 90s. It was, all the, it was like 30 episodes that you couldn't show nowadays because it would be considered intolerant. I was like, that's interesting. I can see what I'm preaching on. I read this. I was like, yep, yep, yep. None of that. So you couldn't do any of those things. You can't make fun of people nowadays. And I will tell you, you shouldn't. That's not a bad thing, right? It's good that we have changed that. The problem is you can still make fun of Christians, right? Think of all the TV shows and all the things where it's still culturally okay to do this. You can, you can say it in sitcoms, in movies. You can say outlandish, atrocious things. You can broad bust. You can do all those things. But here's the deal. See, this is what happens so oftentimes for believers is when they say, we say, that's right. And we get offended when we should be going on the offense when it comes to this. See, when, our, when we as, when the moorings of society were that we're all similar and the same, well, that was one way, but now that they're not that way anymore, we respond by being offended about it. Guess what? Sinners are going to sin. Guess what? When people are out in the culture, when they don't have Christ as their mooring, when they don't have truth behind them, they're going to be knuckleheads. It's going to happen. When we get offended and we don't go on the offense, we are in error. So often those things happen, which brings me to number three. How do we do this? Number three, Christians need to love and serve with authenticity. One of the coolest things about our culture today is that people are starving for authenticity. People are starving for what's true what's real, for people who not only talk about their faith, but also do what they say. People are starving for churches and starving for people that are not in it to win it for ourselves, but we're in it for them. They're starving for authenticity. Our culture is searching for that. We have that advantage. We have that good thing. And we can be an authentic church who authentically loves each other and serves the world. We can be like that. God's called us to that. And when the church does that, we win. Amen? Amen. Number four, unwise tolerance plays tricks on us. Unwise tolerance plays tricks on us. This is... This is an unfortunate detail in our text. This lady somehow tricked them into doing things they probably would have never done. There's a culture here, there's a connection here and between this and civil churches with confusion surrounding immorality and, and idols, it's not here by mistake. There's other churches in these seven churches that had a very similar problem. I don't think it's just kind of happenstance. It happens like this. 
You see, you can't read scriptures, both then and now, you can't read scriptures and think that these things are okay. You just can't. They're clear. They're bulletproof. It's there. It's, 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 it's all written out before you. But when our hearts and our desires are less for Christ and less for what he's called us to and more to fit with the culture around us, we're liable to do anything. And that's the problem in this church right here. You see, when people try to defend or to redefine what sin is and what it's not, our, when our standard of truth is no longer God but somebody else, we don't have Christianity, we have something else. And that is, in many ways, the culture and the way that we live nowadays. But what's so difficult, what's so tough about this? Is that when the culture where we are no longer the prevailing voice in society, that the mores are being pulled up and we are being redefined, if we aren't smarter about things, we'll fall like anybody else does. Because for many years, it was cool to be a Christian. It, was, it, 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 cost, it didn't cost you something. For many years, I've heard people say that if you wanted to be in business in a certain town, if you wanted to have a business and insurance, you had to be a part of a church. Well, those, that, that, that's, that's being redefined before our eyes. It's being changed before our eyes. You see, our standard of truth has to be God. Can it be confusing? Can the Bible be uh, misinterpreted? You bet. And for many years, it has been. Where the church and where Christians have called things sin that actually weren't sin. Where they have called things not sin that actually were sins. You see, we have to get back to being what the word says we are supposed to be. We have to be authentic. And if we're not, in a confusing word, worlds will miss the mark. You see, it's worth getting right. And as the band comes forward this morning... Number five, we need to remember who we are. One thing that my mom did when I was a child that I will never forget, and I do with my children every day, every morning, every night, we pray, we pray, Jesus, don't let Michaela, Lord, don't let Amelia forget who they are and forget whose they are. Don't let my daughters Forget whose they are and forget who they are. See, here's, here's the deal. Today, if you get nothing else from this morning's message, I, I hope you get this because it really comes down to this moment. This is the, the crux of the message today. You have to hear this. If you were sleeping before, uh, wake up right now. Hit, you know, hit your neighbor because this is really important. You see, this is what's going on in Thyatira. This is what led them from how did they do this? This is the answer right here. You see, their lives were on the line. Their livelihoods were in danger. Their value was likely seen in what they did and not as who they were as followers of Christ. Somehow along the way, the church has lost the understanding that we are to be the ones who create and who make and who form society, who say this is what's right and this is what's wrong. Somehow we've lost that. We've tried to fit in and like, be like anybody else and allow sin and allow garbage, allow things to influence us and change our ways. You see, here's the deal. Sin kills Sin destroys. It destroys marriages. It destroys 
families. It destroys futures. You have stories. You have many stories of times in your life when sin has ruined lives. Right? All of us have. Yet somehow on the way, too many have lost that as being the mooring of their lives. This church's value is likely seeing what they did as contributors to society, not in who they were, as followers of Christ. When someone came along and told them that God's standard be compromised, that the ends justified the means, they tolerated it, and they gave it a voice over God's unchanging wisdom. I don't know this church. I don't know these people. They may have been well-versed in the Bible. They may have known it. They probably did because they had Paul as their leader. But somehow on the, on the way, they lost their way. There could be no greater warning, no more dangerous place. And I think it has to do with this. Wherever you work and live is a place of greatest temptation of unwise tolerance in this regard. And I illustrate it with this. When I was in high school, I was desperately wanting to fit in. I wanted friends. I wanted people to like me. I wanted everyone to think that I was fun and cool and all this kind of stuff. So I will tell you this, that though I was raised on some strong moral character and fiber, because that's what I wanted more than anything else, I changed my moral fiber to do what I thought would get me what I wanted. And I compromised. And I tolerated. And I changed. And I became something that I wasn't. And I was miserable. Did I have some friends? Sure I did. But guess what? There was a night when I remember when I had come home, when I wasn't come home yet, but I was down at a party. And I was driving, we were driving to the state uh, basketball tournaments in Mankato, and my friends were driving. We had about eight guys in the van. We had a cooler of alcohol. We're all drinking. We're all having a great time. We walk into this place, and all those guys would have sold me down the river for one second. Because when our, when our principal saw what we were doing and, and we got scared and got nervous, they ran as I walked towards this, this principal. I didn't see him. They all ran away. They just sold me down the river for a minute. So what I wanted, what I thought, what I wanted, it didn't. See, Christ and him crucified, living like he's called us to, living away from sin and away from these, the bondage that sin brings, is power. Sin destroys. God gives life. And that's what's being communicated here. And what Jesus warns against. But listen, the scripture is not finished. He says, now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, those who did not hold to her teaching have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority. And he goes on and goes on and goes on. He says, Whatever, whoever has ears, let them hear. The Spirit says to the churches. I need the guys to come forward today as we close in communion. This message comes down to one thing this morning. It comes down to what Paul communicated and talked about. That what, where wisdom comes, where understanding comes, is not from me trying to be wiser or stronger or getting more stuff. What comes, it comes from the voice of Jesus Christ. That's it. 
The power to walk away from sin doesn't come in trying harder. It comes in the person of Jesus Christ. My ability to walk a holy life doesn't come in my pride and my ability to live a holy life. It comes through Jesus Christ. It comes through my falling upon him day in and day out. And though it may cost me everything, what I will not pay, what I cannot pay, is my dependence upon him and his voice in my life. Heads bowed this morning, eyes closed today. Jesus gave us such an incredible illustration before he left this earth through communion. This illustration of the body and the blood broken for us, the, the blood given for us to clean us, this illustration is not just a religious experience. This is a reminder day in and day out that you can't do this by yourself. That you might live in a world of, of, of tolerance, you might live in a world of foolishness. You might live in a world that's going in a, in a terrible direction and you see it and it frustrates you. But Jesus, who came, who came to that place in that world, in a place in a world that was far more deadly than ours, came and brought change and brought his word and brought healing. And he said, man, whenever you meet, don't forget this morning, as your head is bowed, eyes are closed this morning, I want to give you a chance today to reflect and to pause and allow him to speak into your life. You might be here today and you have tolerated a voice that shouldn't be in your life. You might be here today, you've tolerated this thought that, that you have tried to get ahead through business and you have felt, well, Business is business. If I don't tolerate, if I don't change this little thing, I'll never be able to feed my family. You might be here today and you might say, man, I, I've, I've tolerated uh, something. I've tolerated a, a way with my friends and neighbors that I just can't share. I just can't live like, like Christ has caused me to live. And you have tolerated a voice. You say, that's okay. And I'll tell you today it's not. But I'll also tell you this morning that there is still hope. You walk out of here today and say, man, there's no hope there. Then you miss this part. There is hope. Because Jesus Christ, power and presence is here this morning. And make his word and make his ways and make him to live a life to the Spirit.